We're in John chapter 2. Uh, we are continuing a series this morning called How Jesus Made Followers. So the last couple of weeks we've been uh, watching Jesus and how he interacts with his disciples. He invites them to, to come and see. He shows them kind of significant experiences with his power, right? And so we're watching kind of his relationship with his disciples and how he is shaping and forming them. He's drawing them from being casual observers to people who are kind of fully engaged, walking with him, to people who eventually will do his work in the world. And so, uh, so we're asking this question because, like, ultimately, as we have been kind of thinking about what is next for us as a church, as we uh, have been thinking about even what it looks like for us to, uh, to kind of step into what God has for us, what we're recognizing is that um, it's not just this organization that makes Jesus followers, right? Like, it's not just this uh, kind of system of all of us together that is called to make disciples, but every disciple of Jesus is called to be disciple makers. We're all called to be disciple makers. We're all called to seek people who would uh, eventually follow Jesus and walk deeper with Jesus. So with that being the case, uh, we are going to watch Jesus, and we want to learn from him as he does this. And so today we're in John chapter 2, and in and, and verse 13, what we actually see is that uh, it shows us Jesus as he kind of violently causes an uproar in the temple. And so it's probably fair to ask the question, what do violent uproars have to do with making disciples? So uh, have you ever had a passionate anger about something? anything. Okay, I see a lot of like very quick nods. Yes, you know what this experience is like to have a passionate anger about something, right? So if you're a parent and anybody has ever wronged your kid in some way, you probably remember having some kind of passionate anger about that moment, right? Uh, I, I think that's like a thing that we can easily relate to. As I think about myself, like I don't I find anger to be like a challenging thing. I don't often tend to get angry. But there are a handful of times when I have been uh, driving and I have been cut off in the midst of traffic. And for some reason, I don't find passionate anger all too inaccessible at that point. Like somehow I am able to find in that moment passionate anger. I can actually think of times uh, when I was a kid, a student in school, um, and I was uh, coming up and I had this teacher, Mr. Gilbert, and uh, my, my parents are in the room and they will remember Mr. Gilbert with me. Uh, I was angry at Mr. Gilbert, often, in fact. You know why? Because he wasn't a good teacher, right? And he's not going to listen to this. I'm not worried about that, so I can say this freely. He did not do his job well. He did not explain things clearly. And then what happened at the end of the day is that my grade suffered because he was not doing his job well, and he kind of had just decided that he wanted me to be the kid who, like, didn't get everything right. So, okay, so that was, I only had that bad experience with him. Okay, so, so those moments of anger, whether it's me on the road or me with uh, Mr. Gilbert, uh, those, those kinds of anger might be questionable, right? Because uh, those are all about self-justification at the end of the day. Like, I am worried about protecting me and kind of what's mine, about making sure that I look good. So that's true. But then there are other times that I have been passionately angry, and I actually, like, I think it was a good thing that I was angry. So, uh, so walk with me through this. 
uh, I, I witnessed a local pastor blatantly lie about events that occurred. And because of his lie, he got all sorts of social media acclaim. Like people were just celebrating him and boasting about him and saying, you're the greatest, you go, you're so fantastic. So he got all of this acclaim for his lie and faced zero consequences for lying about it. And that, that made me passionately angry. So angry, in fact, that I sought to address it with him and then was ignored from that point forward. Uh, so that's worth it. Uh, that's something that I was passionately angry about. Here's another thing that I was, uh, have been passionately angry about. When I hear stories of the various kinds of abuse that church leaders permit or excuse or carry out, that makes me passionately angry. When I hear about church leaders who are found guilty of disqualifying wrongdoing, uh, and then they either leave their church or resign or get fired, and then they go and they start a new ministry 18 months later in a different place, and then because of their following and because of everybody who loves their gifting and who thinks they're a compelling speaker, go and join their churches, and they don't have to face any consequences for the thing that they did, and it starts all over, that makes me passionately angry, right? And now, I'm not saying that I don't go too far in my passion, like that I still am a broken human being. I'm not saying that my passion cannot get out of control sometimes, but I, and I'm not saying that every motivation of my heart in the midst of that anger is justified, but I do know that Jesus loves his flock And when he puts shepherds in charge of his flock that end up acting like wolves, I think there is an appropriate and passionate anger that would be carried out. And for what it's worth, if if the same thing, God forbid, would ever be said of me, there is an appropriate and passionate anger that ought to come against me in those instances as well. So the reason I talk about all of that is because today we're actually going to see Jesus express some appropriate and passionate anger. And he's going to kind of even create a scene with his anger. In fact, if some of us were with Jesus when he did this and we're reviewing with him after the instance, we might be inclined to say, Jesus, I think you got a little out of control there. Right? Oh, and we see the problem with that, right? We, we're calling the, the God of the universe to account for his going too far. So in order to show his disciples what is really important to God, we walk into this story. John two thirteen. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover is, for what it's worth, like the originating event upon which the whole Jewish worship system was built. All of Jewish worship, worship was built around Passover, right? So, so um, Passover itself is the first organizing day of Jewish society. So that when Passover was established, God said, like, this is going to be kind of the first month of your calendar, uh, the month that Passover occurs in. It was the feast to celebrate God's work of redeeming Israel out of Egypt. Uh, And so their calendar organized around God's identity as a rescuer for them. And then uh, on top of that, 
when uh, the Jewish people got into their land and um, they were able to set up the tabernacle uh, and then everybody kind of went to their own spaces, everybody was supposed to make a yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. And here's what happened in Passover. They would sacrifice a lamb uh, to represent how uh, God was sending the angel of death, but, but that the, the people of Israel could be protected from death if they put the, the blood over their doorway, if they sacrificed the lamb, right? So, so what Passover established is it established for Israel the concept of sacrifice in order to approach God, right? And then from that point, the temple and Jewish worship all flowed out of the ideas that were established at Passover, right? These created a system by which people could be able to walk with God. And this is not just Jewish people either, right? Like foreigners, sojourners, people who were traveling through the land, people who had heard about the great things that God had done. God made a way for those people to be able to come to him as well. And what's interesting even beyond that is that the different kind of options that God gave to all sorts of people at all sorts of levels for being able to approach him, so that uh, people who didn't have enough money to perhaps be able to feed their animals as they traveled across the land to get to Jerusalem, God created an option where they would be able to purchase animals at the temple. Uh, And not just any animals, but like if you were a particularly poor family, you didn't have to purchase a lamb. You could purchase a dove if you couldn't afford to purchase a lamb. That in this whole system, as God is setting things up, he's creating a situation that is kind of open and accessible to all people so that they can understand who he is so that they can have relationship with him. So here's the core message that is established in Passover, and then everything else kind of flows out of this idea. The core message of Passover is this. By sacrifice... God made a way for people to approach him. By sacrifice, God made a way for people to approach him. Time and time again, this is what the Jewish people would learn about who God is. And so Passover was kind of this constant reminder and even like a teacher about God's identity. So that every uh, year when the Jewish people practiced this, they would be reminded about God. It teaches us that God is just right? That, that sin requires atonement, that it requires blood to be paid, that it requires death, that God just can't overlook sin. But it also teaches us that God wants to be accessible, right? That even though he is just and even though he, uh, he must deal with sin, that at the same time, us sinners, he wants to find a way for us to still have access to him. And so he creates this kind of system. He instills these processes and procedures because he greatly desires to be with people. And of course, we know that Passover was preparing Israel for Jesus. That over the years as they practiced Passover, that it was pointing to something ultimate that was going to take place in Jesus. So, so the Israelites had these lessons about sacrifice for sin. And that was meant to prepare them for a Messiah who would give up his life as a sacrifice for sin. And so we come upon the Messiah and he is participating in this Passover pilgrimage. Verse 14 says this. He came to the temple and in the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheeps and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So remember, um, Passover, it's supposed to be a system that gives a clear pathway of worship and access to God. 
It's supposed to instruct and remind all people that, yes, while God is just, at the same time, he desires to be with people and that he's willing to make a way for people to be with him. That's what Passover is supposed to be teaching you. And then, uh, and then you walk into the temple courts. And what you witness, here's what you witness. You witness booths and exchanges and trade taking place. Like this, rather than a place of what seems to be worship, really what you see is a place of commercial exchange. This looks very much like the Roman markets that you walk into. Right, but that's only one part of the problem. And actually, like, that's not even the biggest part of the problem. Because at the end of the day, like, the way things had been set up, like, it was actually enabled in the law for things to be set up like this. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, it was possible for those who had to travel long distances. They couldn't bring their sacrifice. Like I said earlier, they could be able to purchase their sacrifice at the temple. And it just so happens that uh, in this day, because they were under Roman control, they had to purchase uh, with Jewish currency, right? Because the Roman currency had Caesar's head on it, uh, and so they, they didn't want to have any kind of form of idolatry taking place in the temple. So you had to exchange your currency, get Jewish currency, uh, so that way you would be able to kind of fall within the lines of the law. And then on top of that, you know, there was a temple tax that everybody had to pay, and that is all part of, you know, kind of both what is allowed and commanded in Scripture. If you want to read more on this, you could go to Exodus 20. You could go to Deuteronomy 14, right? God sets up kind of procedures that people can walk through, right? And these processes, for what it's worth, they actually create the possibility of access for people who are traveling, for people who have to exchange their money, like those opportunities are available. But here is where the big problem came in. Over time, some arrangement had come about or uh, taken place over the years between the temple staff and these people called money changers and animal merchants, and, and somehow certain people realized that when all of these people are coming to Jerusalem, there's a great opportunity for some money to be made in this situation, right? You got people traveling from all over, and so... So these money changers don't just exchange money, but they start charging an exchange rate. And not just that, an exorbitant exchange rate, right? They, they, uh, they kind of realize, you know, and you can even justify it by saying, you know what, this is a time of particularly hard work. We have, we're day in, day out. People are coming in. They want to buy their sacrifices. They need to exchange their money. Uh, we, we probably have to work 12, 13 hours a day just to like, make sure that we can meet with everybody here. And so, uh, so you know what? It's okay if we charge a little, like take a little bit more off of the top, make sure that we get a little bit more for this. The animal merchants, it's very possible that they uh, could have been increasing their prices, right? Recognizing that demand is really high right now. And if demand is so high, then we can charge a higher fee for these animals to make sure that uh, we kind of get what we're worth over here. And for what it's worth, like all of this happened in the outer court of the temple. Uh, the outer court of the temple is the place where all people were able to come. Right? All people were able to come to the outer court. So, so the, the further you go into the temple, the more restricted things get. But in the outer court, everybody could come, which means that the outer court is actually like supposed to be the people where, where people realize, hey, we have access to God here. And then what happens instead is that in this outer court, 
the temple has essentially become this place of a money-making venture. Right? This, this place and this time that was supposed to instruct people about a God who is making a way for all people to be with him. In this place, people were creating actually more difficulty for people to access God because they were profiting off of the opportunity to kind of exploit these pilgrims to Jerusalem, these travelers. And it was happening inside the boundaries of the temple, this access point to God. And so Jesus does not love this. Uh, verse 15. It says, and making a whip of cords. Often when you hear people preach about this, you will hear preachers make a comment like this. Jesus in this moment did not react, but he took time. He, didn't, he wasn't controlled by his emotions. He took his time to make the whip. He was methodical. He's not just letting emotion determine his actions in these moments. And you know, like I agree with that concept 100%. But there is an even greater significance to this moment beyond the fact that Jesus just wasn't controlled by his emotions. Because Jesus is not just responding to a singular moment when he walks into the temple. Jesus has been coming here year after year after year for the past 30 years. Right? He's been coming in and he's been watching this take place every single year. This moment is the culmination of years of him kind of watching the central aspect of Jewish worship become commercialized for God's people. So his passion has been building as he has been watching pilgrims take this journey. And then he, he watches some of them take the journey only to find out that once they get there, they can't afford food on their visit because they used all of their money for the exchange rate in order to be able to buy their sacrifice at the temple. He's watched Gentiles become interested in the Jewish God and then be restricted from worshiping God because they couldn't afford the exchange. Right? He's watching uh, people, uh, person after person after person, being taken advantage of in this place where they were supposed to be reminded of what it is to have access to God. And so Jesus has been planning this moment for a long time. So he goes in with his whip, and in verse 15 it says this. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus, in his passion, creates a scene. Right? And this scene, his disciples are going to remember this for the rest of their lives. They will not forget this moment. Right? He goes to the people who are actually creating barriers for people to approach God. He goes to the people who are preventing others from meeting with God and seeing God. He goes to the people who are kind of corrupting this core message that God has been building. This message, by the way, that is supposed to point to his death. Right? And he takes it out on them. He flips over their tables. He drives their animals out. And then in verse 16, it says this. Then he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do you know what the pigeons are? They're the sacrifices for the poor people. It's the only way that poor people would be able to worship God. 
Right? God had specially made sure that every kind of person from every kind of status would be able to come and worship him. And here these people are trying to make money off of the backs of poor people. Like God was making sure that the most vulnerable would still have space to access them. And so these are the people that Jesus wants to have a word with. Right? They're making worship difficult. They're putting up roadblocks and barriers to the people who needed to see God the most. They're exploiting the disadvantages of others. They're giving preferential treatment to some people over other people, and they were making money off of God. And all of this, while Jesus stood before them, prepared to give his own life to make God as accessible as possible to every person. Like, Jesus is passionate about this, not just because he is passionate about the things that God wants, but because the whole purpose of this system was that it was supposed to be training and preparing people for his sacrifice, the the thing that he was going to do to draw people to God, and then here these money changers were kind of confusing the message, creating barriers between people and God. And so Jesus says, no more. Get out. Leave. Leave. Take these things away from here. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Right, so here is the summation of all of this. This is what Jesus is showing. He is showing that he is consumed with giving people access to God. That is like, that is the thing that he gets passionate about. That is the thing that he gets excited about. That is the thing that he will overturn tables for. So don't be confused here. Don't be confused. Like his zeal is not for the brick and mortar. When it says the house, zeal for this house, it's not talking about kind of the physical structure. His zeal is for this place that he has built in order for all people to have access Right? He's, the temple at that moment was the place, the, the kind of situation where people could come and experience that access, where they could come through sacrifice. But he was preparing people for his body to be the place through which people would have access to God. Right? So, so the disciples are watching Jesus do all of this, and here is kind of the message that they are learning. Listen. What in the world is that? It's ex- <laughs> it's a, a nice little animal out there or something. I don't know. Uh, here's the message that the disciples are learning. Don't complicate access to me. Don't create additional barriers between me and you. Don't create divisions between the divisions of people and preferences when people are approaching me. Make sure that every single person has a way to meet with me. Like, this is the thing that the New Testament writers, actually, like, when we watch the passion of of the New Testament and the passion of the people writing the New Testament, this is the thing that they stay passionate about, like, more than anything else, that people would have access to God. So, uh, so, like, for example, and, and I'll just give you a few examples here, that this theme stays constant throughout the writing of the New Testament. So first of all, Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we have a story of Jesus and children. And the disciples say to the children, no, stay back, stay away from Jesus. He doesn't have time for you. And then what does Jesus do? He rebukes his disciples and says, let them come to me. And then do you know what he says to the disciples? 
He says, if anybody is going to create a stumbling block that prevents them from coming to me, you know what? It's better for you to hang a big stone around your neck and go jump in the ocean. Like, that's a better thing for you. How about, uh, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Uh, what happened at the Corinthian church is that uh, people, they would have their kind of uh, their feasts that included communion. Right? So the, the elements of the body and the blood, they would all be eating together, being reminded of Jesus' sacrifice. But do you know what was happening at the communion table? There were a lot of people who, when they got to the table, and it was probably, for what it's worth, the richest people in the group, when they got to the table, they would take as much food as they wanted, and even more food and even more food, and eat like gluttons. And then they would take a lot of the wine, and they would get drunk at the communion table. And then, you know what happened on top of that? After those people got through the line, people came to get food, and there was no food left for them. So do you know what Paul says to the Corinthians about this? He says, people, you wonder why some of you are getting sick and dying. It's because God is judging you because you are selfishly approaching me and preventing other people from being able to have fellowship with me. How about Paul and the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5, uh, he is talking to the Galatian church about people who said, uh, you need to be circumcised in order to fully have access to God. Right? Like that is the requirement. That is uh, kind of what is established. You need to be just like Jewish people to have full access to God. And so in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, uh, well, in the whole book of Galatians, he asks this question, like, who has bewitched you? And then he says uh, of these people who are spreading this lie, he says, I wish they would castrate themselves, right? Because they're preventing people from having access to God. The Apostle James in James chapter 2, James talks about people who create divisions between certain people. When people are coming into worship, what is happening is that uh, some of the churches were saying, oh, you look like a rich person. You know what? I have a very special seat that I've set aside for you right here. These are the nice seats, and uh, so we've reserved them especially for you. And, uh, oh, you don't really look like a rich person. You kind of have some shabby clothes on. So, uh, you know what? Why don't you just sit here on the floor? That's, that's the space that we have for you right now. And James has a massive problem with this. Why? Because when people are approaching God, we're all kind of on the same level, right? We all come through the same place. God is creating access for all of us, but then what leaders can tend to do is they create preference for certain people, and this creates unnecessary barriers when God is inviting all people to access him, to worship him, to come to him. Right, so this is key to Jesus' ministry, which is why the New Testament writers pick up on this. And this is what he's showing his disciples. This is what he's trying to even stir their passions for. He believed this so much that he gave up his life for it. The end result of his ministry is that his sacrifice is what gives people access. And he says, don't complicate it. Don't make people pay for it. Don't favor it towards some and not others. So here's what the disciples learned. Make his passion yours. All people have access to God or can have access to God through Jesus' substitute sacrifice. So uh, he goes on in verse 18. The story goes on and uh, the Jews are, are wondering, 
you know, what's the deal with all of this? So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They said to him, prove to us that you have the authority to do this. Like the people who are in charge of the temple, they're the ones who actually, you know, we paid for a spot here, right? Like we, we paid to play. We belong in this space. So prove to us that you actually like should be telling us to move, right? And then Jesus kind of gives this cryptic answer of, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so, so Matthew uh, 2 verse 20, sorry, uh, John 2 verse 20 says this, um, that shouldn't say Matthew, it should say John. You probably figured that out by now. But uh, John 2 verse 20 says this. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the God of the temple. Right, like when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up, first of all, he's establishing his authority over the temple. Right, but he's saying, I'm, I'm the God of the temple and you know what's gonna happen? The access point is actually gonna change. Right, like you're going to destroy my body and I will go willingly and become the access giving sacrifice. And then I, he says, I will raise my body and then I will show like everything that has been going on, I will show all of you what should you should have been showing through the temple this whole time. That free access to God is available. So verse 22, it says this, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So remember, we're, we're not just watching him confront temple authorities. He's actually doing something very intentional with this. Yes, he is kind of doing this kind of prophetic action against the temple authorities, but at the same time, he's training his disciples. His help, he's helping his disciples see something. And here's what he's teaching them. Like this moment, this, like this moment becomes incredibly instructive for them as they consider Jesus, and they understand how important it is that God is providing access through his son. Right, so so what? So what this morning? And uh, in this so what, I just like, we could ask a different question entirely, which is, what does this mean for how I make Jesus followers? What is this story? Like, what significance does it have for me? As I, I recognize that as a disciple of Jesus, I am called to be one who makes disciples. So how do I make Jesus followers with this? So I, I'm going to offer us Three kind of big next steps. Number one, I'd invite you to reflect Jesus' passion for gifting us free access. Right, so you can't change people. Like, as we are all called to be disciple makers, none of us can change people. The only thing that can change people is knowing and meeting with a God who at the end of the day, like, we should not be able to access. We should not be able to get where he is, but he, through great cost to himself, opened access to all people, right? And he's the one who can change. So this is why, for what it's worth, that we talk about the last days of Jesus's life as his passion. This is why it says uh, that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because uh, 
they, Jesus was so willing to go to great lengths in order to extend to people the opportunity to have relationship with God. Right, so as we kind of seek to be those who would reflect Jesus' passion, help them see Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, to endure great suffering. Help them see Jesus' joy to go into the midst of this time where his body would be beaten and he would bleed and he would hang on a cross and he would feel like he is suffocating as he is hanging up there. His joy to approach that, his heart, ultimately because of his heart, to welcome and accept all people who otherwise wouldn't have deserved to be welcomed and accepted. So reflect that passion kind of in a positive way. Help people see just how much Jesus was willing to do this, just how kind of thrilled he was, not about enduring the suffering, but about what comes as a result of the suffering that he was going to go through. Help them see what he was working for and how willing he was to go after it. But then that's kind of the positive side. There is a kind of negative aspect of his passion too, which is what we see in this passage. Right? Like, there is place for us to respond and speak clearly with anger to situations that people create that are, that are creating division between people and God. Right? Like, much hurt that people have in relation to church actually comes from churches creating unnecessary boundaries in the midst of this space where there's supposed to be access. Right? And it's okay to be angry about that. Right? Like, ministers of the gospel funding lavish lifestyles in order for them to be able to uh, buy anything they want and have anything they want and ultimately funding something that is all about the love of money. Right? It's okay to be angry about that. Right? Because when people, when the world sees that, they see the game you're playing. They know that you're just like, you're just trying to get money, right? Like you're just, you're just building this kingdom for yourself, right? People see past that and it creates a barrier, right? You see that uh, kind of televangelists who every, uh, every five minutes in their infomercial have uh, the ad that comes up and says, hey, if you buy the special healing holy water from me, I'll send it to you. But do you know how many people have been, like have opted into that? Right? And what kind of barrier it creates, right? Like God is not restricting access to himself uh, for you to send, you know, $10 to my ministry so I can send you special holy water. Right? Like charging money for worship or sending a bill for the tithe to people. Requiring, uh, requiring confession to a pastor or a priest who, like, what are you, what message are you sending in that moment? You're saying, like, well, you need to go to a different mediator. You can't just go to Jesus. You need to go through somebody else to get to Jesus, right? That, that's another barrier. We don't want to teach those lessons. Giving preferential treatment to wealthy people communicates that God's kingdom is built by the powerful. When you hear uh, stories about pastors and how they go around fundraising to different people and how they kind of set up systems, and I even heard a story of a church that used to put all the rich people and the, the famous people in the church at the front so that when the cameras showed the church, people would see those famous people sitting in the front of the church and they'd want to go there. Right? 
care about churches who teach seven minute, like kind of moralistic sermons that communicate that what God really wants is for you to just be a good boy or girl, right? What does that teach you? It teaches you that access to God comes from being a pretty good person, right? That's not true, right? All of these things create barriers between people and the free access that God has been offering throughout history. Right, so, so Jesus, we need to reflect Jesus' passion both against those things that are creating barriers and also reflect his passion for, like in the way that we celebrate his willingness, his joy to go and endure these things for the result that was going to come. Uh, number one, or sorry, number two, I want to encourage you to check your own tendency to create barriers. Right, this may take introspection that hurts, but ask yourself some questions. Am I doing anything that would hinder others, especially the lost people that I'm interacting with, that would hinder others from experiencing Jesus? Am I using my gifts to help others, but then really, at the end of the day, creating situations that end up hurting others? Does the, does the way I live my life communicate to others that they can find easy access to a God who truly loves them? Am I honestly and open, like openly available when someone I know wants to ask questions about Jesus? Right, like your attitude should be one that says, let me help anyone I can see Jesus. Romans 10, 13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every person, any person who comes to understand who Jesus is. And so we want to do everything we can to remove the barriers between people and Jesus. Do we have that kind of hospitality that reflects everyone? So no, uh, you may need to actually like take some time to pray on this. There may actually be some people in your life who you're creating unnecessary barriers who they may ne- never be interested in approaching Jesus or coming to see Jesus because of the way that you live your life or the things that you communicate about yourself, right? The call here is to do some introspection and some reflection. And then uh, finally this, because this is always can be confusing when we talk about these sorts of things. So, so remember that obedience isn't a barrier, it's a result of receiving the gift. Right, so, so receiving the gift is saying, I want personal relationship with a God who would call me to his kind of obedience. Right, like God, God is determining the kind of obedience that he is calling us towards. We're saying, I want relationship. But the whole point is, as I get to know the God of the universe, I get to know his intentions for creation, the kind of things that he wants from people, his desires uh, for our lives, and I see how much I fall short of that, that I, I look at him and I'm still compelled by his character. Right, like that, I say that's a God that I want to spend my life walking with and learning from and learning to obey. And if that's my heart towards God, the good news is that Jesus has given me free access have a relationship with that God, to approach that God, right? So, so the obedience that he calls us to, the things that he calls us to repent of, those things are not barriers to our access, but when we access him and we get to know him, we see the value of those things and we begin to step into them because he has freely lavished grace on us. 
right? So if that's our heart towards God, the good news is that Jesus has given us free access to be, begin walking with that God from now and into eternity. And with that being said, I'd invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, you were teaching your disciples something very unique about yourself, that you were passionate about always conveying to the world that there is opportunity for you to be pursued. So as we hear this this morning, as we hear your words this morning, as we encounter kind of your indignation in this moment, would you help us, first of all, to examine ourselves and ensure that we do not convey an attitude of judgment or of harshness to the world that is outside of relationship with you? Right, that we would be those who communicate that there is open access, that there's a place where uh, they, you, you are inviting them into relationship with yourself. May we reflect your heart and your hospitality to other people. Maybe we welcomely, openly welcome people into relationship with you. Lord Jesus, help us to see the hospitality that you've extended to us. We, we didn't come to you through any performance of certain actions, through any paying of certain kinds of monies, through any uh, anything of ourselves. We came because you opened access by your body on the cross. As recipients of the free gift, help us to be those who live openly towards others and create no barriers between you and them. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we come to the table. The table is a reminder uh, to us that as we gather together, as we come and worship, like we are in Jesus' presence. Jesus is inviting us to be with him. And there's no greater display of his hospitality than that he would give up his body so that we could have access. So he kind of called us to practice this table where we would eat bread and drink juice. The bread represents his broken body and the juice represents his shed blood. And these things are reminders to us of what he was willing to endure for the joy that was set before him so that we could have the opportunity to be invited into relationship with him. So we will eat and drink together in just a moment. Uh, and so as a reminder, because we're just kind of getting used to this process, um, in a moment, we're going to take a moment of silence. And uh, silence, reflection, you'll get, you'll hear, you have a little bit of silence, but there will also be some music uh, playing uh, for you to reflect. We'll have about three to four minutes of reflection. I just invite you to reflect with gratefulness on who Jesus is. And then, uh, then as, after you've reflected, as you feel led, you can come up to the table and take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and take it back to your seat. And there are kind of three ways that you can get to the table up here. You could either walk down the middle aisle up here, or there's plenty of space here in the front, too, that you could walk up. And then uh, you can take that and sit back to you at your seat. Uh, and then after that, Garth is going to lead us to eat and drink together. And then we will respond together in worship. But as we're here reminded of Jesus' hospitality, we're reminded that Jesus shows up at tables. You know, as we started this whole table thing, I, um, I asked you to remember that 
as you gather together with other Christians at your table, that Jesus is there with you. And that as you invite those who don't yet know Jesus to your table, that Jesus is there with you then as well. And so, so we're reminded at this table that Jesus shows up at tables. And so I just like, I want to celebrate some of these, um, these ways that Jesus showed up at tables this week. At one table shared with somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus, the question was asked, like if I could ask Jesus any question, he said, I would ask, how do I walk with God? At another table, um, someone confessed the struggle of receiving God's love. At another table, somebody uh, said that they experienced fellowship in the midst of isolation. At another table, Jesus showed up and gave someone the experience of acceptance with brothers and sisters. Right? All of this is really good. Jesus is present at our tables, and so he invites us to his table to receive and experience his hospitality. So on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he lifted it up to heaven. He blessed it. He thanked God for it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul, when he was kind of reflecting on this expression of Jesus' hospitality, he said this, for, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Alliance Bible Church, I w- I'd invite you to take uh, some moments in reflection and then as the Lord leads you to come to the table and take the bread and the juice. Let's reflect together. And invite you to receive the benediction. Church and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you. He's brought you near in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Alliance Bible Church, it has been such a privilege and a pleasure and a joy to worship with you this morning. Thank you for worshiping.